Over the Ball is brought to you by Soccer America. Soccer America, the soccer paper of record. Go to SoccerAmerica.com and sign up for your subscription today. And by Nella from Fitbiomics. A Harvard doctor has found the probiotic strain that is found in most world-class athletes. Not all probiotics are the same. And by FundraiseForYou.net. FundraiseForYou.net provides solutions to coaches and athletic organizations that need to raise money for their programs. More information on all our sponsors at OverTheBall.com slash sponsors. Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn. That's me, alongside Chris Shamanis. Uh, who is Chris Shamanis? My new co-host here on the show. Well, you've come to the right place and the right show, because today we're going to talk about you, Chris. This is like an intervention, dude. You didn't even know this was going to happen. Uh, that's right. We are introducing, well, you know, Chris, I think last week I introduced you as uh, the new co-host, but someone is a coach, a dad, a philosopher and snow removal. And then I got all kinds of inquiries of like, who is Chris Shamanis? Do you people, have you ever heard of Google? Google them up. There's a lot out there. So, uh, so in fact, we're going to, we're going to talk about you, Chris today. Cause I think one thing that most people don't know is that you're one of the few people who've won a national championship in the NCAA and an MLS championship so uh that's pretty americana man written all over it so you ready to dive into uh, a big lake you yeah i'm ready the uh the chance man, to you're talk- quiet there jesus and, oh the chance to talk <laughs> soccer i mean i was uh i was i was enjoying how you were rattling all that off yeah I might add. yeah but no i looked to, to get into the nitty-gritty of things and to talk about a path you know i'm one path there are many paths and I always like to share that because I know as a, as a younger coach coming up, uh, I learned a lot about other people and, and their path and how that, you know, helped me to get to where I have gone in my career. So happy to, to talk and share and spend time with you, Kev, always. Yeah, and you've had a lot of, you know, mentors, all of us have along the way. But, you know, I mean, looking at your career uh, over 20 seasons of head coaching experience, NCAA men's and women's, uh, you've worked at three different MLS clubs. Uh, we can talk about that a little bit. LAFC, Shivas, USA, which, man, that's a story within itself. That's a movie with what was going on over there. And then, yeah. uh, and then San Jose. Um, you won a national championship this past year as head coach at Cal State uh, LA. Um, coach of the year. Oh, yeah. How easily, how easily I forget that one. You're a coach of the year and, uh, and a national coaching staff of the year. So a lot to talk about with your career because it's really interesting looking at it because it goes from – from basically just little kids, uh, even with working with your own, you know, uh, kids and what you notice all the way up to MLS and even coaching with Bob Bradley, who was uh, one of your mentors. So, um, so I'm looking forward to talking about that. I wanted to just touch base quickly on a couple of things. Uh, I want to first of all talk about, did you see Ronaldo's hat trick yesterday? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because Man United is getting uh, dumped on a little bit because they're struggling so much. Uh, but the, the goals that he pours in at every level, at every stop of his career. And then uh, it's, it's the, he's got the FIFA record, right? There's been yeah. no one who scored under the FIFA umbrella more than he has. And as much as I think there's probably more Messi fans than Ronaldo fans in a way, uh, the, the numbers speak for themselves and, and to be able to be that consistent for so long, there's very few people who do it. And, and there is a photo op, uh, of, of Ronaldo with Tom Brady, you know, from, from, from after the game and oh, really? you just see, yeah, yeah. And obviously the connection there is the glaciers, right. The, glaciers, you know, yeah. the owners and all that stuff. But like the, uh, the, the, to see two people get into their forties and still score goals like this, it's tremendous. Um, 
I think an amazing photo out there to, to, to you know, two of the greats ever in their sport, football and football. Uh, it was amazing. And then I was on a hike with my daughter uh, yesterday and some kid just yells out, what the fuck? And I was like, what is up? I, I said, everything all right? He goes, Tom Brady just unretired. This is in California, up on a mountain somewhere, you know? Kid, kid yells that. So I was like, you got to be kidding me. I, I thought it was a, a joke. 44 years old, Brady's back. You know, I, you know, New England, Boston comedian guy. So uh, I've always watched the, the, uh, the Patriots. So that was amazing. But then, Ronaldo, I am impressed because the thing that those two men f- really share is this myopic focus on their careers and their bodies and, and how they can do it. Now, having lived some life and been a father, uh, you know, we all try to teach our kids balance in life, but boy, if you want to be one of the greats, that's what it takes. Uh, it seems to come a little easier for Messi. Uh, Ronaldo just works his ass off is like I said, myopically focused and boy, he, he, you know, this is the other thing I think you want to, you know, Chris, that you probably teach your, your, your players. It's like, there are down times in soccer and he's gone through some injuries. He's gone through some, some games that didn't, you know, uh, get anything any points on the board it's frustrating and yet you continue to work hard keep your head down keep fighting and then it, it starts to happen not like it happens for ronaldo that rocket he hit but uh he, he, his stick to it yeah commitment, right yeah yeah i mean the, the, you know the the rarefied air of someone who's got amazing starting points genetically mm-hmm. and an, an insane work ethic when those two things go together and you're constantly in growth mode and you have the healthy ego to always want to be at the top and to stay at the top, to keep that hunger. I mean, there are so many players that have come through the ranks that are super talented that either don't make it because they can't get their mentality right, or maybe they're just unlucky physically. Um, so you have to have some fortune, but you also have to have like crazy drive to not only get there, but the hardest part is to stay there. Like getting to the top or getting, whether it's, you know, a, a college conference or, you know, winning your youth league, like that part is a challenge, but to actually stay at the top for a long period of time, right. that's really hard to do both individually and collectively. You know, I, I talked to Craig Burley from ESPN and he was saying that one of the things, the growth factor in players, you, you talked about the, the, the talent of continuing to be hungry. He talked about the fact that they were getting millions of dollars at 17 years old, 16 years old, 18 years old. So it was, it sort of takes a little bit of the, um, the desire out of you, that, that edge that you have as a player playing with a chip on your shoulder that you want to learn, that you want to win, you want every competition, um, that paying these players early, which you really have no choice if you want them now, uh, does undermine a little bit their determination, um, you know, and then so, uh, but, you know, look, there's Ronaldo making one of the highest paid athletes in the world right now. Uh, and he's still got the desire you talked about. So pretty. Yeah, there's different goals there. His goal is to be the best in the world and to be the best ever. And that's a different stratosphere that he's shooting for. And not, not everyone wants that or feels like that's attainable. So when those first early checks come in for a lot of athletes, they're good you know, and, and, and maybe they don't keep going with their path. And it's, it's really hard to maintain that. It takes a massive commitment, you know, and nowadays we have so much extra support in terms of, you know, understanding biochemistry and dialing everything in, in such a functional way that you can probably extend your career. Uh, And that's what Tom Brady does is everything he does is functional with his workout. Same thing with Ronaldo. Like, you know, his body is perfect for what he needs to do. And we have support to do that where many, many years ago, we didn't have that. So you have athletes going a little further. 
You always say you talk about longevity and they have it and they take care of themselves. Like Mickey Mantle was this amazing athlete, amazing baseball player, amazing athlete across the board, actually. Um, I read his biography, but it was, uh, he thought, oh, I'll, I'll play maybe till I'm 30 years old, maybe if I'm lucky. And that's why he went so hard. His father and grandfather both died, you know, very young. And he thought, oh, this is it. But these guys would get hammered every night and then get on buses and go to the next town and play a game. They get hammered that night. And nope, now these guys, you know, the specifically designed sports drink for your body's, you know, chemical makeup, all that stuff. So um, a good day for American soccer. I thought Jesse Marsh had a big win with Leeds. Did you watch that? Yeah. One? Yeah. Dramatic win, which is awesome. And that yeah. just suits him to a T because he brings passion to the table. He did that as a player and he does it as a coach and his tactic, his tactics kind of mirror that as well. So he comes with that kind of an energy. Um, so yeah, look, we're rooting for him. He's an American coach in, in yeah. the premier league. And you know, the more that we can have men and women going to the highest levels and doing great jobs on the coaching side, the more doors that are going to open. And, and Bob tried to push through it and it was hard for him um, because a lot well, of Bob, the Bob Bradley, Bob Bradley. Yeah. A lot of the support around him maybe wasn't quite right. And it was a very difficult challenge. Oh, you think, Oh my God, yeah. he was thrown into a, a shark infested waters. And, and of yeah. course the English press, they were assholes completely about it. And just, you know, and I think they, you know, it's interesting you bring up Bob because I mean, he did, and he's a great coach, and he's coached at every single level. And yet, you go to the Premier League, and they somehow look down on you because you're an American, which is pretty amazing to me. So you're you're already fighting an uphill battle. Then they he got thrown into a shit show, uh, almost a you know, um, just almost an impossible task. And he was given a short period of time, and the press jumped on him too. Which I, I've always had a problem as a player with English coaches with me the way they the way they taught the way they sort of acted like they uh, they did invent the game, but they didn't perfect it. I think that was the Brazilians. Um, but what maddens me is that you, you listen to Jesse Marsh after the game, and he's incredibly articulate, uh, which I think helps. Um, and he kind of laughed off that stupid, uh, the press got on him, like Bob Bradley. When Bob Bradley said PKs, we all say PKs here in the States, all of us. And you know what we're talking about. So when he used PKs over there, they're like, oh, look at him. What is he talking about? Oh, lit PKs. That was yeah. the whole... Uh, you know, That's a really good accent, Kevin. You're very good at that. It's great. And he's stuck in there knocking a ball with a mixer. Yeah, <laughs> knock it forward. Knock it forward. So what I laugh about is... Uh, you know, Rodney Marsh, who's uh, on Sirius XM now, took over my show that it was supposed to be an American show. Uh, but he said, oh, he laughed. He goes, there will not be an American coach. I'm like, oh, my God, you condescending asshole. Not only, yeah. not only are most of the coaches in England, the top coaches aren't English and the top players aren't English. So where does the attitude come from, man? I don't get it. So they're already throwing shade at Jesse Marsh. Yeah, I mean, look, it starts with, with Bob Bradley, like you say, you know, I mean, we're generally in this world of, of, you know, immediate media, social media, cancel culture. So Bob goes in, you know, with a very narrow runway and he, he has no preseason because he comes in after that. Then he has uh, two international dates. He has no transfer window. So he barely has time with the guys to get him going. Yeah. And when it got a little harder... Uh, you know, there is this choice like, you know, do you just hold on for a result tomorrow or do you try to build something? And he took the path of trying to build something, which is, you know, OK, you need the club to support that. And, and when things got hard, they bailed on him and, and they let him go real quick. So, you know, he never really got a chance to kind of, you know, get it off the ground in, in a certain way. And, and, and Jesse now comes in and hopefully has 
you know, trying to strike a balance there where it's so hard, right? Where he's fighting a relegation battle. So points are really important. It's not about perhaps the long-term growth. It's about making sure they stay in the Premier League. That's very clear. And he's going to pick off a couple of things from Bob Bradley. He's obviously played for Bob Bradley. I mean, those guys intersect. I don't know if everyone knows that, but like, you know, you're, you're talking about Princeton. He played for Bob at Princeton. He played for Bob at DC United, at Chicago, at Chivas USA, with the US national team. I mean, they've overlap their careers in a massive way, but then have gone in different directions recently where Jesse has really kind of taken the path of the Red Bull model and Bob has evolved into different types of styles of play. And so they've, they've kind of diverged a little bit um, recently, but that's what's landed Jesse this, this Leeds job is the way that they play and their game model has some overlap with the Red Bull way. And it's all about high energy and passion. So to see him get that result yesterday, the way they got that result, perfect fitting and, and really good for you for American coaches. Well, Bamford's back, which helped. And, uh, you know, th- going back to Bob and his at Cardiff, right? That's where he was. He was Cardiff. It's like, I feel like, no, where was he? He was at Swansea. Swansea, Swansea. Yeah. yeah. Swansea, Cardiff there. Um, you know, then the, the English Premier League does something like they'll give Sam Allardyce chance after chance after chance just to save teams from relegation. And they give him longer periods of time like that. Now you always tell players, don't believe your own press clippings, but it seems like, uh, the owners there succumb to the sort of journalistic pressures that the English press puts on you, which is like, what's this American doing? And they always screwing it all up. It's like, you know, Sam Allardyce is doing the same thing. He would have, you know, been given that chance. Yeah. Conversely here in this country, I think Jurgen Klinsmann was given long, a longer amount of time because of his reputation and he's from Germany and everything else where, so you get the opposite effect there. A hundred percent. And then, yeah. and you have in between Bob and Jesse, you have Ted Lasso. And so now there's this caricature that's out there of an American coach. Uh, And so that is already something Jesse's had to, you know, comment on and deal with. And he's handling it as well as you can handle it. So credit to him. But you you hope that those those comments quiet down because that's not fair to Jesse or the team. Well, you're right to bring up Ted Lasso because as soccer people, it annoyed us at first. It's a good show and it's funny and it's uplifting and it's positive. And and I like that. but the fact that a, an American football coach can go over and step into uh, that level of play and not have, I always thought, as I know one of the writers, so I said to him, I said, I get it. You got this guy and it's working. I get it. You're going to win Emmys and everything else like that. But shouldn't you have a sort of Svengali, like, you know, like the, the, the kid who's of um, Pakistani or Indian descent, who's, you know, English kid, he should be like, the uh, brain guru, like it really, he channels like a tactics. Yeah. Yeah. How do you change tactics in the game? And they're so intense and they're so uh, uh, challenging that to to dismiss that is just so annoying to soccer people. (laughs) It makes a parody. It makes a parody of soccer players, right? Which we know that. The best part of the show is when you, you, you don't listen to the cat, to the actors, like just look at the whiteboards in the back and look yeah. at the, like the, oh, the drawings that they have. Yeah. <laughs> just like American football plays. And it's hilarious. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Which, so I guess I'm happy there's a soccer show up, but man, it's just annoying uh, that, you know, it's sort of, that's how they look at America right there. And that's, you know, yeah. We have to deal with every single guy on air over here is English, uh, pretty much. And then they're they're just you know you almost hear it when they start to talk MLS. They start to uh, all right, and then just begrudgingly talk about American soccer. So that's why I hope we kick their ass. And I've always said I think the U.S. is going to win a World Cup before the English. I kind of was doubting it four years ago, but um, but uh, maybe maybe it'll happen. So. I mean, <laughs> 
other thing we talk about is uh, Chelsea and mm. Abramovich and this whole um, you know thing that's going on with Ukraine and Russia. Uh, I wonder what's going to happen in that club. You know, I had coached Mike Manilo, uh, former Nigerian national team player. He was the director of player personnel over there in Chelsea for a long time, and it was a very stable situation. Abramovich had the money. He was uh, doling it out. They were getting players. They were not only getting players, they were selling players, right? Uh, making money back that way. Uh, very stable situation. They climbed the, you know, one of the top teams in the table. And now this, it's sort of imploded. Yeah, I mean, they have so much money that they've been able to just throw money at problems. So they never have to worry about paying someone out. They'll just change a coach anytime they want to need to do it. That's been their philosophy and it's worked for them because they've been true to it in a consistent way. And most clubs can't operate that way because they can't afford to operate that way. And he's had that silly money to play with. Yeah. And yeah. And that's what's made it different. Right. So now if he's not going to be there, who's going to be in there and how deep are the pockets that are going to come in? And that's really where I think this club is going to, is at a crossroads. That's a challenge. Cause I always say to like people that tell you Mourinho is getting paid, I think three different clubs now, you know, for going somewhere, failing, moving on, failing, you know, and then Bob Bradley, you know, gets a week and a half at uh, Cardiff. But I think um, this is a, this with, with Chelsea, I, Anybody can win with money. And so what I say about these, like a Mourinho, I'm like, yeah, great. Why don't you coach Cardiff and see how well you are and what a genius you are as a coach? If everybody had that money, couldn't a lot more, a lot, you know, a lot of coaches do pretty well? Yeah, but I mean, there are X number of clubs that have all that money, right? So it's right. like, you know, it, it's a short list, fair enough, you know, but PSG has been trying to win the Champions League forever. It's, it's the one reason they exist right now and they can't do it. You know, so it's not just money. It's it's all these other things as well that that factor into how does a coach blend with the players? Where are these players coming from in terms of are they at peak? Are they younger? Are they experienced? All these kinds of things. I mean, that's the beauty of sport is when you pull a group together, you don't really know how it's all going to look. Right. So, right. you know, whether it's the 1980 men's Olympic hockey team and, you know, it's it's not about picking the best guys. It's about picking the right guys. You know, it's th- that exists today and in, in, in all clubs is how do you get the right blend and it's it's an imperfect science so just throwing money at it will get you competitive and keep you in the premier league but it's not going to necessarily win the premier league and that's why chelsea doesn't win it every year well that's why i say it's almost like the new york yankees where they would go out they did best when they developed players in their farm system and then you know brought them to the bigs uh, it was when they went out and tried to acquire all the best players all across the league. There was no chemistry on the team. And that seems to be a challenge at Manchester United and at Chelsea as well. So, um, all right. So let's, let's talk about you a little bit. So you, you've had a great year uh, coaching wise. I mean, it's some pretty heady stuff. You win a national championship last year, uh, division two men's at Cal state LA. Uh, then you get the women's job, but You've coached women before. Now you're the head of a D1 program at Loyola Marymount. But talk about, let's talk about your path. I mean, how you got started. Uh, I mean, I think you grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and there's a real ethnic uh, culture there that supports soccer. I used to play at the Oval over there. I still have yeah, glass, still glass, oh, sure. glass in my yeah. ass and my knee from that field. But um, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's been crazy because how did you how did you start though? How did you did you learn the game from a, a mentor like a 
Because all of us have yeah, for me, I mean, look, I think everyone my age, it, it's it, it's different for everybody. You know, for me in Brooklyn, New York, it, it was a very family thing in the sense that my mother was born in Italy. My grandmother lived in Italy for 20, 30 years. Um, and so we had a lot of connections there, friends and family. As I was really, really young, we would nice. go to Europe during the summer and I just indirectly got exposed to soccer, to football and saw how it existed there and saw how it didn't exist here. And my father was a baseball guy, just an American baseball guy. And so I started playing baseball and started with that and all of that stuff, but realized pretty quickly that, man, I like this one. I get to run a lot and I get to kick it and it's fun. And so as a kid, I was like, this is what I like the most. And I don't need to be six foot six and I don't need to be, you know, a home run hitter with a big dude because I wasn't. And um, I started realizing that this was a sport for me. And, and as I would keep traveling back during the summers and get a taste of, of the soccer world, uh, I, I did all that I could to stay in the game in the U.S. And that just meant playing for my local church league in, in Brooklyn and then trying to play pickup. So like, you know, for me, it was all about you go out on, on a Monday, you're playing with the Portuguese guys. You go out on a Wednesday, you're playing with the Jamaicans. You go out on a Thursday, you're playing with the Italians. And, and every single one of those ended the same, which was in a, in a fight. <laughs> yeah, I know. But, you know, I tell you, you, you touch upon something very interesting. And I think it's uh, a lot of coaching uh, people are talking about this now, but the unstructured play, because it's, it's, it's kind of gone a little bit, especially in the suburbs. Uh, the cities aren't playing that much. I mean, you go Sunday morning in Central Park, people are playing at six, seven in the morning. Um, you see that. But for the kids, the younger ones, they don't have unstructured play now where you have uh, yeah. everything's uh, curated by their parents. Um, and I know basketball is having a problem with it as well. These kids go to AAU now. They're in a structured environment. And what you're talking about is not only an unstructured play, like just, just free play, but what's great about soccer is the different – cultures that come with the game i've done i've been where you've been where i played with jamaicans played with brazilians you know they're always storming off and kicking the ball away and you know, the other so it's like these cultural differences that you learn yeah. but the brazilians had a certain style the jamaicans had a certain style haitian players i learned a ton from um yeah you know the english guys play that certain way so you start picking up all these different cultures as well yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, I mean, we, you could talk hours about free play, you know, because I'm a big believer in it. I, I try mm -hmm. to bring it into my teams, even at this college level, you know, trying to give them as much, what I would call more generic sessions in which we don't overcoach, but we coach within the context of free play, but w which is at our older ages, mm -hmm. something that I still think is super important, but at the younger ages, it's vital. And, and everything is overcoached right now. Uh, right. I, I have a, a son who is young and enjoys playing. And I've tried to keep him out of club soccer for a while just to get him as many free play opportunities as possible so that he's not overstructured at an early age. And I think some of these other countries have much more of a culture that way where they have uh, more touches on the ball at an, at an early stage. So in a way, part of the way my kid gets the most kind of fun and enjoyment and free play is at recess when he gets right. those 15 minutes to play soccer. And that's what he comes home talking about all the time. And, and so like, we need to recreate that, but within the coaching world. And that's something that I got. I, I, and I was just lucky, you know, because when I was yeah. a kid, I was walking to the park to go play. I was really the only American kid going to do that. You know, I was right. really going to go with men 
And that was my only chance to play because there really weren't that many other options if I wanted to play throughout a 12-month cycle. So nowadays, it's obviously very different. So I've been around for a really interesting chapter uh, of American soccer growth. There was no MLS. There was nothing to necessarily play for. You were just trying to play for the love of the game. And then it became possible to play in college. And I realized that was a path. And so I started focusing during that path. But man, like, I don't think we played on grass until I got to college, you know, in Brooklyn, it was all about, we had a field called the dust bowl, you know, it's not a blade of grass on it, you know, and, and playing in different fields where coaches had to walk around and like, just pick off the glass and all the other things before we even started playing. That was all a part of it. Yeah. Soccer is a game in the streets, which, you know, what the Brazilians are so great at it. Even the English, they talked about in the back of the pubs, kids were kicking the ball the whole time while their parents are having a few pints. Uh, but so, so the unstructured play, you're a big believer in that, uh, which, which I think, and, and about field conditions, I'm talking about out here in California, a beautiful grass fields. My complaint watching some of the youth games is the fields are still too big for these little kids to get touches on the ball. It's just too much space. They think, they think, uh, you know, like to, to break out of, even when Americans, we play in a gym, we used to play with the walls instead of just trying right. to get out of the back. Like you would try to break a, a full court press in basketball, uh, you know, to learn those skills, the, you know, composure and uh, supporting angles and everything. And it's, uh, it's, it's kind of, it's a bit of a shame. So you play with, oh, go ahead. Comment. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the futsal part of it, I think is really important. You know, that being able to play in small spaces, being able to play uh, and it's all about touch and timing and trying to find creative little ways. And, and I had a similar thing too, where in my neighborhood, there was uh, just a local high school that, created this little indoor soccer league and, and they didn't really know the rules. They didn't have anything formal. It was more so playing on a basketball court, but they allowed us all to use the walls, you know, the boards, the bleachers, yeah. whatever, everything was in. Yeah. And that was awesome because it was a little bit hockey ish, right. Where you could, you know, bounce it off the, the, the puck off the board, but it also it just opened up your mind to creativity and like, how else can I get the ball from here to there? And obviously it's not realistic for a full field 11 v 11, but that outside the box thinking of just trying to find little solutions to things and find little creative ways to make plays that that's a muscle that needs to be built. And that gets, that can easily be coached out of someone. And I think the more free play you have, the more open-minded you are about how things can get done on the field. Um, that's probably the better starting point than just the nuts and bolts of the techniques and the tactics at an early age. All right. So you sort of pick a lot of this up in Brooklyn, which uh, I have a joke in my stand-up. I said my parents were born in the old country, uh, Brooklyn, which is because you know, it was like, you know, all these immigrants were there. It was where it was all happening. You know, my yeah. grandparents were Irish immigrants and they first moved to Manhattan and my grandmother didn't like it. And then they moved to Brooklyn and she said, oh, I, I like it. The buildings were lower. There was more greenery. It was this beautiful town. Um, yeah, it, it is. Once again, it was a shithole when you were there, but moving on. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, oh, my, hey, my neighborhood was all Italian. It was the safest part of Brooklyn. The oh, yeah. Really hey, safe. Hey, hey don't your name Flynn? Name Flynn. <laughs> I think you were in the wrong neighborhood. Yeah, you got to go 10 blocks that way. All right. So like I always say this see, now, you know, it seems like where you lived was really your, um, you know, how you sort of learned the culture a little bit about the game or the, and the many cultures that go into it. I mean, mine, I, I talk about, you know, grew up in this lily white town. It was a football town. I was supposed to play football. They were state champs all the time. Um, and I just discovered this game. Like, and I, in eighth grade, I would put a soccer uniform, just to, you know, shorts and a shirt underneath my football pads. And when I, was, I would drive back from 
on my bike. It was like I'm riding a bike to football practice. On the way back, I stop and do a soccer practice. This never happens to the kids today. You know, they're like, be home at 8.07 and I will feed you a... Um, but what I loved about it was like, you just commented on the unstructured play of it where I watch to just play little pickup soccer was like, it felt like uh, pickup basketball, just end to end going back and forth, just creating, you know, doing stuff. Some things work, some things don't. Uh, and I fell in love with the game at that point. And then I make this state team and then I go stay with a Haitian family and they're talking politics and, and everything. And I'm like drinking in these cultures. So, so you pick it all up in Brooklyn. Yeah. You go yeah. on to play, you go on to play division one college soccer. Talk about that a little bit about how you got out of the high school and, and got seen. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, you know, as I got a little bit older, it, it was this sense that soccer was real and it was big and that there could be a path. And, and for me, okay, when I went to Europe as a kid, that, that obviously exposed it to me. But even when I came back to Brooklyn, you know, I'd go to the Italian pizzeria on the corner and there were pictures of the Italian national team there. And, you know, right. the, the, it, was, it was so revered. And, and I was trying to understand that because – it wasn't across American culture necessarily at that time, but it was in these neighborhoods. It was huge, you know, right. and it was really difficult to watch. Like we didn't have it the way we have it now. And so I'd wake up on that Saturday or Sunday morning and somehow find that like the member RAI, the writing yeah, channel right, from Italy yeah. and watched, you know, some of those games coming in, whether it was Napoli or Lazio and you could barely make it out because it was kind of fuzzy. And that was the one game I saw all week. You know, and I would wake up to do it. And I don't know why, but I did. And, and I just kind of stayed with it. And then the idea that, oh, wait, they do this in college. I'm like, oh, I'm definitely doing that. You know, yeah. and so I just kind of built my way through high school, built my way through club. I played for a little Norwegian club in Brooklyn, which was exactly what you said. It was like run out of a bar. We all we had a locker room in the basement of the bar. It just stank of kegs and all that kind of stuff. And we'd, we'd meet there, go play come back and you know it would be 9 a.m after 10 a.m after the game there'd be 12 guys at the bar drinking beers at 10 a.m would they you know, feed you yeah, the yeah you know they, they throw I always played for the stuff. portuguese man the portuguese always fed you well the portuguese yeah. Greeks, those are the teams i tried to get on yeah yeah that's a good good idea i should have done that but yeah you know we did that and then my high school again high school soccer was not the main sport i mean we're brooklyn new york i mean we had some like chris mullen went to my high school we were really big basketball high school we were you know track and all that stuff so soccer we, we ended up my senior winning the very first championship that, that they'd ever won and you know that kind of built my kind of confidence and, and passion for it at yet another level and then jumped into the college scene um you know and, and, and did my best uh, to, to get there and i, I kind of made it a pick of you know where can i go academically where i was going to be happy which ended up being lafayette college and then at the same time a place where it was division one and just built my career from there, you know, and it wasn't easy right away because, you know, my world was kind of small in, in, in Brooklyn where there weren't that many teams and that many players, but now you get to D1 and, and they're all good. Right. And so it was a challenge for me, but eventually got into the first team and, and, and really enjoyed my four years there. I, for, I forget that sometimes you and I had the same uh, college coach because I had Jeff Gettler at UMass. And then he went to Lafayette. I think he went to Richmond after or Lafayette. No, Lafayette first. And then Lafayette, then Richmond. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but Jeff, you know, talk about passion for the game. Jeff lived and breathed and loved soccer. Um, he was of German heritage too. And just, just, just 
I mean, for me, it was amazing to watch as a player for him. Just, just he was committed to it 24-7. His whole family was, his wife, the kids, everybody was behind it. So you go to Lafayette, um, kind of rude awakening when you, when you step on a pitch, that first uh, preseason. Yeah, yeah, for me it was. Yeah, for yeah. me it was. Because I didn't get to, you know, coming out of Brooklyn, we didn't have many paths. So I was, remember that street soccer kid, you know, I didn't have a lot of coaching. I didn't have a lot of structure. So I had to like build it on my own and figure it all out. And, and just the way the cookie crumbled for me, my, my parents put me in early to, to kindergarten. So like by the time I got to, I was, I was young, I was 17 when I went to my first fall. Um, which is a bit young and, and, and I'm not the biggest dude. So, you know, it was You're a challenge wait, for wait, me. Wait, you were 17 in college? Yeah. Freshman oh year, I was goodness. 17. Yeah. Had you, so, reached, had you reached puberty yet? I, I, just that, part of it. Like generally helps in preseason. <laughs> 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 yeah, no, but that's what it seemed like. Like we had these seniors on the team that, that man, if you told me they had three kids, I would have said, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. You know, but you know, it's, uh, it, it was, it was physically a challenge. Uh, it took me a little bit of time, um, but you know, eventually settled in as I got a little bit older there. Um, but yeah, I had Jeff my senior year and you know, the part that, that I really appreciated about Jeff was that when he, he would come to the table with that passion that you mentioned and right. would talk about the global game. Like a lot of American coaches wouldn't do that. Like you either had, you know, uh, some kind of, um, international type of coach growing up, you know, who didn't maybe speak great English, but knew the game. Uh, that was my general experience. Or I had an American coach at the time who didn't really know the game that well, but was volunteering his time or trying to, you know, provide some coaching. And so, you know, I appreciated everyone and everything, but it wasn't until I got to, let's say Jeff, where we found someone that could talk about European soccer and talk about South American soccer and, and yeah. knew about the global game. And that's what I had always been following. So now all of a sudden here was someone speaking my language. So that helped, but I didn't get to that guy until my senior year. Right. You know, so the right. path so is so different now for kids. They have a, such a better path. Yeah. And I think to, to, to be around that passion, especially when you're young, just uh, is very formative. So you leave college. How, how do you get involved in the pros and, and uh, from your, your journey from there? Yeah, yeah, no. I my my first job was in Midtown Manhattan for a, a financial institutional brokerage firm. And uh, wow, dude, you can be making big coin. I for sure be a millionaire right now. Everyone there was a, is a millionaire, and uh, the guy there was fantastic. Neil was a, a great guy and had given me jobs throughout my college time as during summers and whatnot. And you know, it, it was like, okay, the next step is doors open. You ready to come in? I'm like, oh yeah, let me get my feet wet and. Uh, I hated it. You, you got know, him I, wet. You got him wet. Like, wait. I, I hated it. And, you're like, and a, you're like, like a gremlin. I'm allergic to water getting my feet wet here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, you know, I appreciate it. I saw it. I understood it. I hated it. You know, so I'm like, I can't do this. And yeah. then, you know, just tried to figure out, hey, what am I going to do? And uh, just talk with some family and friends and, you know, the idea of, well, what do you love? I, my mother said, what do you love to do? I'm like, I love soccer. Like, duh. Like, that's a yeah, dumb yeah. answer. She's like, we'll do that. I'm like, how am I going to do that? You know, there's no MLS. There's nothing. And she's like, just do it. Just go for something. And so just started and, and ended up being in touch with my old high school. And they're like, hey, we need a JV coach to come in and get started with, you know, the varsity coach and work and collaborate. And the varsity coach is still the same guy who coached me. And so I had that job. I got that job. But that free rent peanuts. Right. Yeah. So I was back at home living with my parents coaching for peanuts, but then they said, there's a teaching job that comes with it. And, uh, if you want it. And so I started looking around 
and I was I started teaching high school math. You know, and oh so God. I was a high school math teacher in Brooklyn at age. You would have done it right in finance, man. I would have. Oh, no, no, I could do the math. I just hated it. <laughs> uh, but yes, yeah, so I was a high. I was a sociology major and a high school math teacher, uh, and I did that two years. And I tell you, Kev, that was like probably one of the greatest coaching experiences I ever had was being a math teacher because I had five classes a day. I had the freshman and and, and sophomore math students, mm-hmm. and I had all the ranges. I had the freshmen who were advanced who were taking sophomore math. I had the sophomores who were not advanced who were still taking freshman math. So I had like all these different learning abilities and um, having to figure out how to get my point across in those 50 minutes. That gave me five practices a day. It taught me how to teach. Wow. That's admirable because I think sometimes they're like, this is the lesson and take it as it, it comes. And I think with coaching, you know that it's like each player you connect with in a different way and you try to you know, communicate with them in a different way to coax them, to make them, you know, get to the next level or kind of figure yeah. out what you're doing. Well, exactly. And, and that actually was the crossroads why I left teaching. And, and it is because for me, I, I didn't have like, I want to be in a room where everyone wants to be there. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the greatest teachers, uh, and I, I considered myself to be honest, a very good teacher, but mm-hmm. I, I, I struggled with my motivation to connect with that student who didn't necessarily want to be in that math class, you know, where, yeah, yeah. And you know what? The greatest, greatest teachers find a way to connect to that kid or, or are comfortable making those efforts. i like to go a little faster. So I like to be in a room where everyone wants to be there and, and then maximize it that way. So for me, coaching ended up being that path because everyone wants to be there. You know what I'm saying? That alone was the difference for me between teaching and coaching. But separate from that, like everything I learned, cause I got thrown into teaching. Like I, no one, I didn't have a teaching credential. I didn't have right. anything. I was, I was a sociology major. So the ability to be 23 and only a few years removed from those, those ages um, and have to teach and, and be in front of a group and start talking and all that, that, that was a super big challenge. But those to this day are probably the, the biggest fundamental experience that I've had in terms of coaching because it's down to teaching at the end. Of the day. No matter what level you're at, you have to get buy-in Teach. and teaching done. Yeah, communication on every level. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. My sister, my younger sister is a teacher and she's been nominated teacher of the year on a number of occasions. She's a great communicator, but she tells me the stories of how challenging it is. And it, I'm like, wow, I would smack the shit out of that kid. Or I would just say, get out of the class or whatever. And she says, no, the challenge is to teach them. The difference is I think sometimes the best people who have the best proclivity to be math students are into it generally because you're good at it. And so you, you're, you're doing it. The kids who are the worst are in the back of the class, you know, grumbling about, they're not even listening. And then once you lose your place in math, forget it. You got to, you know, it's tough to play catch up. I find in soccer, the, the difference is sometimes the most, uh, and it must be frustrating for coaches is the most difficult players to coach are sometimes the best players or the best athletes. They kind of take it all for granted. Um, and, you know, either they don't work hard and so they get to the next level, they can't do it because they haven't put in the work earlier. And it's almost like math. Cause if you don't learn lesson one, you're not going to learn lesson two. They even talk about the NBA where these players come into the league and it's like, no, you have, you're a great player in college. You've been drafted in the first round. You have one or two years to kind of make the transition. You got to work your ass off. You got to completely focused and to go back to like a Ronaldo. Yeah. The focus is there, but you don't always get that with a player. Do you? And it must be yeah, no, that's exactly right. It, it's a challenge. I mean, I think it, 
it's gotten better. I mean, going back to what you said about your sister, like pick a number. If there's 27 students in the class and, and 24 are, are, you know, reasonably good to be there. You know, there are so many teachers, in my opinion, that will spend their time working on that 24 and those last three students just won't make it. But the great student, the great teachers are finding a way to balance that management of the class where everyone is hopefully thriving and challenged and still able to connect to those last three students. Those are the heroes, you know? Right, right. So like, that's where it gets really hard for uh, teachers to, to be fantastic teachers. And those are the ones, and I wanted to be fantastic at whatever I did. And I didn't feel like I had the passion for that little challenge there. Right. And so I segued into the coaching part and that was where I kind of kept going. What I would say though, is nowadays, I think that's an easier issue to deal with from a coaching perspective because there's so many pathways to play. Right. You know, like you can now say to a player, look, you can play in the NWSL. Look, you can play in MLS. Look, you can play in USL. There's so many pathways that, you know, players now can look through college as a vehicle to get to those other levels. So I think if you're smart as a coach, you can shine light on those, on those avenues and say, Hey, if you come through my chapter successfully, you might be able to go to those chapters. So you get a little bit more buy-in if you're smart about it. Right. And uh, I also like the, the growth of club soccer in colleges. So it's giving an opportunity for more players to play. Uh, it's gotten big, you know, it really, yeah, really big. So, uh, all right. So you're, you're playing and now you're coaching and teaching. You take those lessons with you. What's the next step after coaching high school? Yeah. So I did the high school thing and then there was still this sense for me, what was I going to do? I knew I didn't like the financial world. I knew I wanted to do more coaching, less teaching. Uh, and there was an opportunity to go to UMass for my sport management degree. I wanted to get an advanced degree. Safety school. Safety school. <laughs> oh, I went there. Okay. <laughs> no, yes. hey, by the way, did you go to the sports uh, management program there? Yes. That yes. is, it's the top in the country. So it's, yes. it's pretty yes. impressive. In fact, they're getting a lot of players now because that program is so prestigious, you know? Um, yeah. I, I was probably one, and I might be the last person to go through that program with the open intention of coming out of it as a coach. Nowadays, if you have a coaching path, they kind of deter you to go into sport management. You're usually doing some other things, whether it's kinesiology or something, or, you know, they have coaching license, uh, coaching degrees and things like that, well, but uh, or, it's athletic, more or athletic administration. But this was very specific for executives and, you know, people right. who are going to be in marketing or commissioners or GMs and all these kinds of things. So I went in there saying, look, I want to be a coach. And, and they had some of that, but they were closing the door on that. They didn't really want that. But that allowed me, I was one of the last people, if not the last person to go in there under that. Well, it's in the Eisenberg School of Business now, which yes. is, is a big, big deal. So it's a business thing, but it would, I would think it would prepare you to be a GM or, you know, a president of, of a club. Yes. Uh, yes. All those, like, you know, all the arms of it, marketing, ticket sales, you know, all that stuff right. you can, you can splash into any of those uh, sides of it, including athletic administration at the college level. But that wasn't my path. And uh, because now it's under the management, you know, it's an MS degree. It's a master of science degree. Like it was, it was gnarly. It was real classes. Like, you know, it was business law, sport law and all these kinds of things and accounting and all these things. So it was a challenging degree. But what I did 
was I was able to parlay that into being not only my advanced degree, but also I was a first assistant with the women's team at UMass. And that was great because that gave me college experience, my first college job. Yeah. I was doing D one. They've been, they've been, you know, top ranked. Yep. At the time they were both years that I was there, they were in top 20 in the country both years. So it was an NCAA tournament team. They're winning the Atlantic 10. Um, Jim Rudy was my first, uh, mentor. He was, you know, someone who had come from University of Central Florida, where he coached Michelle Akers. He had Brianna Scurry. I mean, he dealt with women's national team players. And, oh, and dude, he, dude! And I was at UMass. You had the UMass soccer team, yeah. and then you had the UMass men's soccer team. <laughs> so, yeah. like, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. We were second-class the, citizens there. Yes, the, the women's team was doing well, and 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 he was just so bright, you know, and and really? so. Yeah, I just sat there for two years uh, and just sat in his office and said, why, 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 right? why? And I just kind of well, learned, you know, and so he would share. And I'd, uh, I'd like to think that I, you know, do that with my assistant coaches now is I try to give them all of my assistant coaches, everyone to a T have moved on to head coaching jobs. Um, so oh, part great. of that is, yeah, you know, I, I view that as part of my job and, uh, the, the idea stems from just that experience where I just learned a lot from, uh, him and, and he was talking about free play, you know, like his name is Jim Rudy, but when he put on the boots and went to play, he'd call himself Rodinho. You know, he had this Brazilian flair to him and wanted, we were playing futsal in the middle of winter in Massachusetts and uh, Western Mass. It was freezing. Yeah. Uh, and I made a lot of good friends during that time period and got my degree, got my coaching. But for whatever it was, like there was just a beat inside of me that was like, I need to be a head coach. I need to be a head coach. Like I couldn't be a head coach fast enough. All right, so then yeah, I went down to Florida and I took a head coaching job in the NAIA. And now I'm like, whatever, 26 years old, but it's the NAIA. So like I have players who are 26 years old. Yeah, right, they're older you know? than you. Yeah. 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 I and used to date I... your mother, Chris, back <laughs> in the day. <laughs> what? Yeah. Like my center back kid kids and I'm not even kidding. So like, <laughs> you know, uh, he was from Iceland and, you know, so, you know, you begin to get to a feel for a lot of the international players that came to Florida and, and, being jumping in the pool. And I look, you know, in terms of like, as now I'm a head coach, I'm trying stuff on the field that I look back at it now. And I, you can only laugh at, yeah, I was well-intentioned at the time, but I'm just learning, you know, I'm just getting my licenses along the way and learning and took in a course at like a Delphi university in the summer and just trying to do, cause I'm back home in Brooklyn and trying to around the game. You know, You're networking, man. You're networking. Yeah. Yeah. But just diving in, you know, because part of the gig that part of the way I got that gig is that they were, cause I was only 26. So it was pretty rare to get a head coaching job, but they had, they were launching a sport management program. So they were looking for someone to teach a class or two in sport management and be the head coach. Um, full circle, man. Yes. There it is. Yeah. Yes. yes. This is where you try to tell young people sometimes it's like, it's not this job. It's this job leads to the next job. And you need to learn. Here's a guy who's played soccer and done comedy for his whole, <laughs> for giving adult <laughs> advice. But I, if, you know, look at the outside. Yes. But here it is, you know, guys, like it's not this job. It's what, what it leads to and how you take it. I, I they talk about, um, they said Puff Daddy and uh, Jay-Z were the best interns that uh, Dr. Dre had. He said mm-hmm. they were like, they, they worked hard, they learned, they kept their eyes on the other So it's like, and they were like, uh, some kids that would get into his intern program would be like, I'm not getting coffee for somebody. And it's like, it's part of it, man. It's part of it. Yeah, be, it's different, right? Yeah, there's yeah. a sense that it's different now where, where you don't want to lose. 
like there's something for coming up the ranks, you know, you yeah. learn to sit there and ask why, 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 and not get things handed to you. Like, you know, there's something to that, you know, but I mean, the way I would look at that is like, if you're a coach that's worth anything, you're yeah. always in learning mode. You know, you're always in growth mode. You don't think you have it figured out. You haven't, you have to have a healthy ego to be able to work, of course, but at the same time, you have to be absorbing and learning and understanding the trends and watching football around the world and trying to bring ideas back to your group, trying to evolve your own ideas, you know, and never stay in one place. I've always really challenged myself to not be in one box for a long time because like right. I get stale that way. So I've always been at multiple levels because that keeps me kind of fresh. So under that same idea, you know, MLS was, was now it was around and there was a chance to go to San Jose uh, with the earthquakes to work for someone, uh, Renato Capabianco, who was like a director of soccer there. And the idea mm -hmm. was that I was going to come in right underneath him and be uh, learning uh, for a year. And then he was most likely going to move on from there and that I would have the chance to potentially take, job, take yeah. over in like a director's role. And that's exactly what happened. And he was there for a short time, mentored me, very appreciative of that. And he moved on to the next gig and, and I stepped in and I eventually was a senior director of soccer. And during that time in San Jose, um, you know, we, we went from worst to first and, and one of the pattern for me here. I hear, see a pattern for me here. And I love the term growth mode because uh, at any age or any level, that's what you need to remember. Again, you, you know, you have these kids who dominated in high school or in their club teams young, and then all of a sudden come to you in college. And it's like, no, you got to stay in growth mode. Remember what it was like to be a freshman, not the hot senior, you know, scoring goals, but you're at the next level now you got to keep the growth mode sort of going. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's what you've done with your life, obviously. Yeah. I, I mean, there's two parts to that one is to try to be a wise ass, you know, like I'll always reference Zidane. Right. So it's like, to me, I mean, look, let's take the headbutt, put that aside. Um, you're talking about a guy who's one of the best players in the world and playing for some of the best teams in the world. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, now has gone into coaching and has won champions leagues and like amazing, right? Like if there is a soccer pyramid, he's at or near the top. And so whenever someone, uh, you know, feels good about themselves, you know, I always kind of use that as a reference point. And I said, you know, does Zidane know who you are? You know, does, <laughs> does he, does he like, if, if you say, Oh, Kev, Chris, you won national staff of the year. You won the national championship in the NCAA. I'm like, do you think Zidane knows who I am? So <laughs> yeah, come on, exactly. you know, like just, just relax. Yeah, keep it, keep it real. Everybody. Yeah. Knows. Yeah. So, you know, th there's that part of it, but then I I've been around Bob Bradley and, and I've had some, and San Jose was when I first crossed paths with him. Uh, and, and I always viewed him as someone who pushed himself to be in growth mode, to take on challenges, to go to new places, to all these kinds of things, which is what Jesse has done as well. So I feel like I've learned from that a little bit and I try to challenge myself in those ways. Do you know, it's funny, Bradley, uh, uh, that guy scared the shit out of me. It just, his presence intimidates me. And, and that doesn't mm -hmm. happen very often. And I say it, it barely ever happens to me. Uh, mm. And I felt it this, uh, when I met Russell Crowe, it was like, he, the guy sucked all the energy out of the room. And it was like, he was intimidating. And He's a gladiator, like, though. Yeah, exactly. Maybe that's why he, he had a sword in his hand at the time yeah. and a beer bottle. So I ran. Uh, I was intimidated. <laughs> no, but Brad Bradley had this. I remember talking to Bob uh, early. I think I just was working out in the hotel early one morning and I looked over in the treadmill next to me and it was him. And he's like, and he, he's got those blue eyes, you know, he looks like a. Yeah a Nazi yeah. prison guard, you know, you're kind of like, Hey, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but he's got that uh, that effect in people. But he's got you know, like you said, you've a, a bunch of your your uh, assistant coaches have gone on to head coaching jobs, and that's the job of a coach. Um, anyway, John Calipari in basketball talks yeah. about that. You know, talk to him about that, and um, that's a great yeah, job. Yeah, and Bob coaching Bradley, tree. Bob Bradley, yeah, 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 coaching, yeah coaching tree. Yeah, no, for me it was being in uh, San Jose, and uh, all of a sudden stepping into this big job, you know, where I was a senior director of soccer. We had a GM at the time, but back then our GM, uh, Tom Neal, he was really overlooking the business side of it. Yeah. Yeah. And he kind of brought me in to overlook the soccer side of it. Mm -hmm. And so those were two different things at the time. And of course we collaborated and he was super helpful and a great professional and really helped us to win that MLS championship. Um, Having said that, it was a situation where, we, you know, I'm whatever, 26 years old at the MLS draft table and we're considering a trade and I get up, you know, we didn't even call each other back then. We used to get up and walk to the other team's table, other table. Yeah. At, the, uh, at the MLS draft. And I went over to the Chicago fire table where Bob was and started talking to him. And I could tell he was looking at me like, who the hell is this guy? 26 you year know? old punk. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you just look him in the eye and you talk to him and, and that's the Brooklyn in me. And, uh, you know, we just started talking ever since. Then. How you doing? How you doing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But what I really appreciated about him is we, that in that team, we had a good team, obviously. We won the MLS championship. But Manny Lagos was in that team. And I always oh, felt fire, that. Dude. I played against him, man. He was, he was Yeah. Yeah. He had a really good year that year. And he wasn't like one of those star names. You know, he was more this guy who was a little bit under the radar but he had a killer year and Bob was the all-star coach and he selected him for the all-star team. And I remember going to Bob and saying, you know, thank you for doing that because we're on the inside and we really feel like he was deserving of that. And I think a lot, it would have been really easy to pass over him, but that showed me how much Bob was really watching. And so I was always in my mind, I was like, ah, this is a guy that this, this guy knows what he's doing, you know? So I always really appreciated Bob in that regard. And then I think he realized where, who I was and, in New Jersey, he's from New Jersey, Union Lancers. I'm from New York and Brooklyn and yeah, everything. Yeah, so there was a lot of overlap there, and we just kind of stayed in touch from there. All right, we're chewing up time like crazy here. Going, I'm, I'm, this is fascinating stuff. I'm loving this, and you know, we're really just kind of dipping into your professional career now, which maybe we'll have to come back to in another episode. I think uh, of over the ball, but let me sure. ask you this to sort of um, square this off for now. And I want to pick up on because you're kind of in management a little bit and player identification and not so much on the field with a whistle, which is what your real passion is and what you love to do. Uh, and mentor I do love to blow and, a whistle. Yeah, yes. Plays and it's not all. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but let me ask you this but before we, we get going here um, or sign off what, so looking at the guys that you have met uh, mentor and women that you have mentored uh, into the coaching positions. Um, what are three, maybe I, things you try to identify, probably the things that Bob identified in you. What do you try to identify in, in other college, you know, potential coaches? Yeah, it's interesting because when, when we won the national championship uh, this past year, my staff stayed there to kind of take over the program. And so I'm coming here now for this new challenge, this new chapter to LMU and, and hiring staff anew. Uh, yeah. And so there's a process there. And so like what you're asking is exactly what I've had to kind of recently reflect on. And so, you know, we, we've brought in two coaches that I think are going to do a great job, but when you go through the process, you know, you're looking for someone who um, 
is smart and has a lot of potential to grow. You're looking for someone who has a passion for the game mm-hmm. and you're looking for someone who wants to grow, who wants to be better, who is competitive, who, who looks as, who does not look at themselves as the finished product, but someone who wants to have a large amount of progress in terms of their coaching evolution. So when those ingredients are there, you know, when they're passionate and competitive and they're bright and they want to be better, that fits the growth mode that I generally look for in a program. Um, so that, that kind of has to be there for us to at least engage a conversation. There it is, kids. It's the words of the day, growth mode. That's what I'm taking from this one. We all should be in growth mode. You know, it's, uh, it's interesting. You know, I'm t- in stand-up comedy right now, a lot of kids are coming out of college having done a lot of stand-up comedy, but mm. it's for their friends and their, you know, kids on campus and there's clubs and all this stuff but they're picking up an attitude where like they really think they're accomplished comedians and they're coming into the clubs and getting blown away by the fact that they're trying to play at another level. And it's, yeah. I, I don't think they have the growth mode mentality and that's the, but they're like, I'm a finished product. I'm already right. here. Exactly. I'm 21. There's a lot of that. Exactly. Yeah. You have a lot of that in coaching. And I think that whatever you want to call it, you want to call it the 10,000 hours, the Malcolm Gladwell stuff, whatever. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, like you can't just get in front of a crowd or get on a mic and, and feel good. It takes years to get to that point. And it's exactly the same with coaching. Like we all have our voice, but you have to be humble as a coach and you have to understand that it's a process and that you have to be sincere and authentic and that, if you bring that to the table, the players will give you the time to get better. <laughs> Good, man. I wish I was a kid. I wish I was a kid getting ready to, to, to be back in the program playing and everything with, uh, with someone like you around. So, Chris, this yeah. has been great um, to, to our listeners to get to know you a little better. Um, again, any questions or anything that I've missed, you can always call us, leave a message, uh, or text us at 424-229-2247. Because uh, I want to pick up next, on the next show about maybe the, some of the professional stuff. Uh, that you uh, that you went yes. to from there. Uh, next week, I'm in Austin, Texas. I'll be performing there. And uh, I think there's going to be a good bar or two for me to watch the game against Mexico uh, when I'm there. So uh, any ideas on that one, let me know again at 424-229-2247. All right, everybody, that's all the time we have today on Over the Ball. I'd like to thank uh, my co-host, who is also my guest today, Chris Shamity. He's an amazing career, uh, and I hope you all wrote down the words growth mode, everybody, because no matter what you're doing, where you are, that can definitely uh, be something everybody can implement in their own lives. So uh, when we stop growing, we die. That's uh, I don't know who said that first. It wasn't me. Maybe Churchill. I think it was Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe, exactly. And Bob Bradley when they were beating the shit out of me in an alley somewhere. Uh, all right, everybody. Thanks, Chris Kev. Chamonix and Kevin Flynn. I'm, uh, this is Over the Ball. We'll talk to you next time. Yeah.